You can open up your Bibles to the book of Exodus, obviously. That's where we've arrived. And uh, I try to give you a heads up. Uh, David had mentioned to me a few weeks ago that it would be helpful if I told you where we'd be next week so that you could read ahead. So next week we'll kind of still be dealing with this, with the Exodus, but we'll be specifically dealing with the Passover. So you familiarize yourself with that. Tonight we're just going to talk broadly about the Exodus. And remember in our last session, we had walked through the story of Joseph at the end of the book of Genesis. And we tried to look at that story um, in the larger picture of the issue of the sovereignty of God. Because remember, at the very beginning, where we were weeks and weeks and weeks ago, when man fell into sin in the garden, and God pronounced his curse on his creation there, on, on people and on Satan. One of the things that he did when he cursed Satan is he made a promise. You remember that? And he promised that there was one that was coming who was going to crush his head, who was going to have victory. And in theological terms, that's the first place in the scriptures, really, where we hear the gospel proclaimed in a sense, that God's proclaiming that he's going to redeem his creation, but then we immediately see, like really quickly on the heels of that, that things have gotten horribly bad, right? Cain and Abel, uh, Noah, the flood, the wickedness of mankind, all this stuff. And it sort of begs the question, how in the world is God ever going to redeem this mess? And so we looked at the story of Joseph, because at the end of Joseph, Joseph's story, at the end of the book of Genesis, we remember that Joseph made a very important statement about God and about us. Do you remember what it was? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And we saw that God, even in the midst of their decision-making and the things that they were doing, that they meant for evil, God was somehow still able, in His own sovereignty, to direct the history of His people and the events and the affairs of the creation in a direction that would give him honor and give him glory and accomplish his purposes. And so now we arrive after the story of Joseph at the book of Exodus, and here we're really going to pick up the story of the nation of Israel. There's really an interesting contrast here between the two books, between the end of the book of Genesis and the beginning of the book of Exodus. If you think about it in these terms that in the book of Genesis, we end with the story of Joseph, who was a shepherd boy who went on to become a prince in Egypt. And then at the beginning of the book of Exodus, we deal with Moses, who was a prince who ended up becoming a shepherd. So there's an interesting contrast there. And God's still working here through this. And I want you just to look at chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 7 in a moment. And this is a significant moment that we understand that, that there's a transition happening here. There's something happening here in the history of Israel. And it says this, the book begins this way in Exodus 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, and Joseph was already in Egypt. Now get that. There's only 70 of them. It's just really, in in the big picture, this is just a little family group that's now arrived 
in Egypt. Verse 6, then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. So now they're gone. It says, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. And they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with him, filled with them. So the nation of Israel's growing. And, and it's interesting to me, you know, they spent and God had told Abraham, if we were to go back and look, God had said that your people, your descendants are going to spend 400 years in captivity before I bring them out. And, and so here they are. And I, I was thinking about this today. You have to imagine that for those four centuries as they passed by that the people of Israel uh, couldn't have been happy about their situation, particularly towards the end. And I just thought to myself, it's, it's an important lesson, isn't it, that, that God, in order to do something, sometimes does it in a way that we would much rather he didn't. And that's what's going on here. The people are, are captive in, in Egypt. They're held captive there. And what begins to happen here, and we're not going to read through all of it. I'm just going to give you, again, kind of the Cliff Notes version of it. But what begins to happen is that Pharaoh begins a systematic sort of persecution of the Hebrews. He becomes afraid of them. The land's filling up with them, and he decides that eventually what's going to happen, there's so many of these Hebrews, that if we go to war with anybody, that they'll rise up, join our enemies, and rebel against us. And so he decides that they're going to begin persecuting them. And so he does this kind of in three steps. One is that he sets taskmasters over them, and they begin to just impose work schedules on them. There are things that they're going to have to do, that there's sort of a forced labor where they're, they have quotas and things that they have to do each, each day, each week, each year. And then that's meant to oppress them, kind of keep them down, kind of ruin their spirit. The problem is that the more he makes them work, the more they seem to multiply, the, the, the larger, stronger they seem to become. So the next was that instead of just this setting taskmasters over them and, and making quotas for them, is that he actually enslaves the people of Israel. They become slaves, and, and he begins treating them ruthlessly. In chapter 1, verse 13, it says, So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And so they enslaved the people of Israel. But then again, this didn't seem to accomplish their purposes either. So the third step in this persecution was that Pharaoh decided that he would call the midwives of the Hebrews together and he would instruct them that when the Hebrew women have children, when they're giving birth, that you need to kill the children as they're being birthed. The problem is, well, not a problem for the Hebrews, but a problem for Pharaoh was that the Hebrew women, the Hebrew midwives, refused to participate in this. And so Pharaoh said, well, I don't need you. He'll just command everybody, all of his people, that if there's a Hebrew child, a male child born, throw it in the river now. Kill all their male children. Let the girls live, but kill all the male children. And so this is where Moses enters the scene. In this context, the people are being persecuted. All the male children are are under a death sentence. And Moses is born to his mother. And of course, she doesn't want to throw her son in the Nile. She doesn't want to kill her son. She doesn't give him up. So she hides him for three months. And then when it's time, she realizes she can't hide him any longer. She can't keep him any longer. She puts him in that little homemade ark that she makes, puts him in the river. The sister, Moses' sister, follows him down the river to see what will happen. And in the sovereignty of God, again, 
When you see these things woven all through the scriptures, there's Pharaoh that day, Pharaoh's daughter that day, bathing in the river with her women and her servants. And she collects Moses out of the river, decides that this is going to become her own son. She's, he's nursed by his own mother, but eventually she takes him as her own son, gives him the name Moses, and raises him without a doubt with all the benefits that her own child would have had in the palace and in the, 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 the kingdom of Egypt. And Moses grows older and he becomes aware of his heritage, or, or at least he, he understands who he is. And one day he goes out, sees the taskmasters of Egypt abusing a Hebrew, and what does he do? God's greatest servant in the Old Testament, what's his first big thing that he does? Commits murder. I mean, and I don't mean that to joke or laugh about it, but I've always thought it interesting that God used a man whose first act was a horrible act. And, and And I know that he was defending somebody, but nevertheless, he murdered this guy, buried him, hid him away, and then he was found out. And he realized his guilt. He became scared that he was going to be killed. Pharaoh decided that he wanted to kill Moses. And so Moses runs from Egypt, goes out to the land of Midian, sits down by a well, gets involved in some things there, and eventually ends up marrying, getting married, having a son. And now Moses, we find Moses at the end of chapter 2 in the wilderness of Midian. And now the prince of Egypt has become a shepherd in obscurity. And now look at the end of chapter 2. I think this is one of the most dramatic portions of Scripture that we find in the Old Testament. Chapter 2, verse 23. It says, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. It's just a dramatic moment in Scripture. that the Israel is plunged into slavery. They're being oppressed. This, this man, Moses, has now grown up in the palace of, of Egypt and had to flee to Midian, and now he's living in obscurity. And then just before he comes back on the scene, it says that God's listening to the groaning of his people. He's hearing what's going on. And it's as if we just sort of get this dramatic moment where God's about to act. And that's exactly what happens. So here, for the sake of time, again, I'm going to rush through the events that follow but I think that you're probably relatively familiar with those. Moses, while he's out tending sheep in the wilderness, runs into God one day at the burning bush, and and God commissions Moses to go back and lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. And Moses, reluctantly, just think back when he first thought he might rescue the people of Israel. He was very bold, but now he's reluctant to go back. But eventually he does go back and commands Pharaoh, stands before Pharaoh, and commands Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out and serve their God and to worship their God. But Pharaoh, of course, refuses to let the people of Israel go and and even begins to punish them more because of Moses' commands. And then he begins, God responds to that by sending plagues, plagues of judgment. He's going to have his people released one way or the other. And so the plagues come. You remember what they are? It's the first one. 
Water to blood. Right. So all the water in Egypt turns to blood. And these just can, increasingly horrible, by the way. I mean, think of the waters turned to blood and the, what that must have smelled like. I mean, just think of all the, the things that, that would have accompanied that. You know, the, the stench, the smell of the dried blood everywhere. And then next, on the heels of that, we have frogs coming up out of the Nile. And everywhere you look, there's frogs in, in your bed and in your pots and pans. And everywhere you look, there's frogs. And then we have the frogs. Imagine the whole place being covered with frogs. And then what do you do with all these frogs? Well, frog legs are good, David. But I doubt that the Pharaoh was, was doing that. But they probably collected these things up in some place, tried to dispose of them. But just imagine the the stench of that, and then you have the gnats, and then you have the flies, and then you have the plague of the death of livestock, and then you have these boils and sores that break out on the skin of the people and the livestock. And if that's not enough, there's the plague of hail and locusts. And so now, just think of it. All their personal property's been ruined. Their livestock's been ruined. Their own health has been affected. Hail and locusts come and destroy all the crops. I mean, just everything is under this immense devastation. And then there's darkness. And it's a darkness that can be felt. And then the final plague. Through all these things, Pharaoh will not let the people go. And so eventually Moses comes back, warns Pharaoh that there's now coming one final plague. And after this, you will let my people go. And so the death of the firstborn across all of Egypt. And of course, we'll talk more about this next week when we deal with the Passover. But Israel celebrates the, or observes the first Passover that night, the night the plague arrives. All who observe the Passover, God passes over their homes. That plague doesn't come to their home, but there's, it comes to the rest of the kingdom. And Pharaoh says, now take all your things and get out. He's had enough. And so God's people go. And you know the story as well that he kind of changes his mind pretty quickly, runs after them, and God drowns the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. So God's going to have his way. But he lets his, he releases his people. Now, now this story that we just went through very quickly has always been a story that, that has captivated the attention of the whole world. I mean, really, this is, this is a story, I mean, they make movies about it, people, uh, they, they write dramatic books about it, there are, there are different plays that are written about it, people are fascinated with the story, and it is an intriguing story, isn't it? This oppression of a people who are miraculously, miraculously saved from slavery and, and let go, it's an amazing story, and it's full of drama, but it's important that we don't miss, again, the major themes that are here in this story that help us to understand who God is and what God's doing. And there are some major themes. And I think that the overarching theme of the Exodus story and the entire book of Exodus is the fulfillment fulfillment of God's promises. Or we might say the beginning of the fulfillment of God's promises to Abram. Remember when we did the Abrahamic covenant 
You guys are all so excited that night. Remember how exciting it was to walk through the promises of the Abrahamic covenant? Well, here we start seeing the, the fleshing out of that covenant in the Exodus. Remember that we said the Abrahamic covenant, really there, there are three distinct promises that are part of that covenant. Anybody remember what they are? Yeah. Linda's looking through her notes, my star student back there. We have three, three promises that, that make up the Abrahamic covenant. The promise of land. All right, perfect. Yes, you'll get a gold star, Linda. So the promise of land. Now, what does this have to do with the Exodus? Well, I think it's pretty obvious, isn't it? That God had told Abraham that he was going to give him a certain land, that they were going to settle in this land, the land of Canaan. He led him out there. Now the people, because of the famine that, that arose over the land, had been brought into Egypt and settled in the land of Goshen. Remember that? The end of the book of Genesis. And so now, in order for God's promises to be fulfilled, for them to inherit the land, he has to remove them from where they're at and take them to the land that's been promised to them. So here again, we see God fulfilling his promise and beginning to fulfill that promise of land. And then the second promise, I'll spell this wrong, probably. The promise of descendants. Now, we touched on this already, but here we have the the beginning of God bringing that promise to fulfillment. When they arrived in Egypt, how many were there? Seventy plus one? I don't know. But in any case, it was just a small family group. But now, after centuries and centuries go by, we begin to see that the nation's growing strong. It says that they filled the land, the nation's growing. And so here we have that promise of descendants beginning to be fulfilled. And ultimately, we're going to see that fulfilled ultimately in this picture we have in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 and 10, where it says, After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the land, Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So that's the eventual fulfillment. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation. But here we see the beginning of God keeping his promise to Abraham. So we have him taking them up out of Egypt to the land that he promised. We have descendants, the nations growing just as he promised. And then finally we have that third element, which was the promise of blessing. And so we have God. First of all, you can see this in multiple layers. One, he's rescuing his people. He's heard them. He's blessing them. He brings them up out of Egypt. And although there's immense struggles in the wilderness, we do see that God continues to bless his people. He provides bread from heaven. He provides water day by day. He gives them everything that they need. When they're faithful, he protects them from their enemies. He wins battles they had no business winning. All these things. So God is already, again, showing that he's fulfilling the promises he made back in Genesis chapter 12 when he called that pagan guy named Abram out of obscurity and said, I'm going to make a nation out of you. I'm promising you land, descendants, and blessing. Here in the Exodus, we see God beginning to fulfill those things. But there's even... I think an even greater 
theme running all through the Exodus that we want to be careful to pay special attention to. And that's that the larger picture that we're seeing in Exodus is a foreshadowing of God's plan to redeem the whole world. Not just a nation that's been enslaved in Egypt, but all those people. That picture that we just read from Revelation chapter 7, where every tribe, every tongue, every nation, here in this Exodus, we have a foreshadowing of that event. And so let's just walk through that, that the theme of the foreshadowing of, of redemption, the future salvation of God's people. So on one side of the board, I wrote Moses. On the other side of the board, I wrote Jesus. And what I really mean is this is the Exodus from Exodus chapter 1 through 12. And when I say Jesus, I'm really just mean the fulfillment of it in the new covenant. So what do we see in the first Exodus? We see God's people in bondage. God's people in bondage. So they're enslaved in Egypt. And they have no other way out but to do what? To ask God to rescue. I mean, that's what we read at the end of chapter 2, right? The people are groaning. What are they doing? They're saying, God, we don't know how to get out of this. We don't know what to do. We don't know how there's any hope for any of us unless you intervene. So they're crying out and they're in bondage. And then the next thing is that God sends a mediator named Moses. Moses comes as a mediator. He's the earthly representative of God with his people. And in the world at large, in Egypt, before Pharaoh. And he's there to do what? To lead his people up out of bondage. He stands between the people of God and between God himself as the mediator who would bring the people up out of their bondage. And then ultimately, God rescues and begins the journey to the promised land. God brings them up and begins the journey to the promised land. Now, it, it should be easy enough, I think, to see the parallel between what's happened there in Egypt and subsequently, as Moses walked with the people out of Egypt towards the promised land, and what happens over here with Jesus. Because... Where do we begin here, really? Where do we begin with the gospel? Yeah. God's people are bound in sin. Romans chapter 6 talks about our bondage to sin. First Timothy, or, uh, or Romans chapter 6, verse 17 says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin. There's the language in the New Testament, not just in Romans 6, but in other places, of this idea that not only are we sinners, but we're in bondage to our sin. We're, we're in chains because of our sin. We are enslaved by our own sin. So we have that same parallel. Here, God's people are in bondage in Egypt, 
And here, God's people are in bondage to sin. We're bound up in sin. And then secondly, God sends a mediator. What's his name now? Jesus. Right, Jesus is the mediator. 1 Timothy 2.5. There's one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. So Jesus stands to mediate between God and men. 1 Corinthians 15 says that Jesus here also, the same way that, that Moses stood to lead the people up and lead them in victory out of Egypt, that Jesus has victory over death and over sin. In Ephesians chapter 4, we were here not too long ago on a Sunday morning. You remember that picture of Jesus ascending into heaven, leading a host of captives behind him as a victorious king. He's leading those that he defeated behind him and giving gifts to men. So we have Jesus, the mediator, comes and leads his people up out of bondage and conquers the enemies that they have there. And then finally, you have God completing this action. Eventually, we'll reach our own promised land in Christ through Christ and what He's done, we reach our own promised land. So the story of, of Exodus is not only a story of slavery and liberation. That's not all that the Exodus isn't just a story about slavery and liberation. It is a story about that, but it's not just a story about that. And it's not it loses, I think, some of its importance if we make that the centerpiece of the Exodus. When really, I think the centerpiece of the Exodus and the real story of the Exodus is that it's a story about God's faithfulness to keep His promises and God's faithfulness to save His people from their sins. That it was a foreshadowing of what God would do through Christ, through Jesus, in the gospel, redeeming His people who had no hope of saving themselves. God's a promise keeper. He always keeps his promises. He began in the, in the Exodus account to do that. And also he brings them to fruition in the salvation of his people. Now, real quick, just turn with me to Luke chapter 9. We're going to wrap up and we'll be done unless there's any questions. I just want to show you just an interesting, interesting thing. And I don't want to get carried away with it and push it further than it needs to go. But Luke chapter 9, verse 28, the transfiguration. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, this is interesting. It's interesting for a number of reasons. But one thing I think is really interesting is if you look in verse 31, it says, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, what was he going to do at Jerusalem? Let's walk through that. I mean, he was going there with a, with a purpose, he was going there to fulfill God's plan where he would ultimately become the, the one 
satisfying, atoning sacrifice that would pay for the sins of the world, and anyone who believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life, would be set free from sin, would be set free from their bondage. All of these things that we see over here, he's going there to do that in Jerusalem. And it says that he was talking with Moses and Elijah who appeared in glory and they spoke about his departure. Which seems, I think, like a strange word in English. But the Greek word, interestingly enough, is the actual word, exodus. Isn't that interesting? That in that moment... Jesus met with Moses and Elijah, and it literally says, you could just transliterate, I mean, you could just interpret it literally. It literally says, who appeared in glory and spoke of his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So the exodus, which becomes, by the way, the event that Israel carries with them everywhere they go. When God speaks to them from this point forward, He's almost always going to find a way through his prophets to remind them of one thing. I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who led you up out of Egypt. Always. This is the big event that sets the stage for everything that would happen afterwards. And ultimately, like every single thing else In the Old Testament, it's pointing us forward to Jesus and what he would do.